Hello, and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright Mark Anthony Rossi. This show explores all forms of creativity for those searching for meaning and a place in the world. To err is human, but so is to love. Now, without further ado, here's your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. This is your host, author, playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. This will be episode number 109, Question the Quiet Selective Writings. Now, this will definitely be a, a different type of episode because I don't often spend too much time um, talking about my own work. I mean, we'll talk about the show. We'll talk about my journal, um, aerial chart. And, and of course, we'll talk about writers and other writers in general, especially through the interviews and such. But I really don't do as much about my own writing. So I thought it'd be nice to be able to do something. I had a print book that comes out from that. It came out about a month and a half ago uh, from uh, a press, uh, Whiskey City Press. Um, I'm very happy that uh, John Patrick Robbins was able to do the, the cover on it, which came out fantastic. It, it's amazing oftentimes when you're trying to figure out your own cover and you just don't do a, 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 the kind of job that you should have done. And, and, then, and then John comes along and just does a fabulous job on it. I, it couldn't get anything better than what he did. He just, he just out, out-thought me on that one. And I was so, uh, so grateful. And I'm grateful for him helping getting this book published. So thank you very much, John. Now, as much as I want to talk about the book and some of the things that are in the book, I think this is also a, a good way to show the other angle of how you might want to consider putting a book together when you're submitting it to a publisher or if you're putting it together for yourself because you are an independent author and therefore it's publisher itself. It could be both. You know, I've been with other presses before and I've done a few of my own on the ebook uh, version of things. This is a print book. I don't do I don't do print anyway. But um so I thought it'd be a good way, good way to do that too. This way, it's not just about all my writing, but also it kind of gives you some thought frames about how you might want to also give thought to your own writing and maybe some of the selections. So I'll read some things. We'll talk about the book construction, some thoughts about putting books together in general. It makes it a, a well-rounded show and something more educational than just you know just my work. And, and, and I'm happy to do that as well. It makes it uh, interesting for me too. Now... Unlike a lot of writers uh, that I deal with, uh, you know, I've had a, a very long uh, run at this, uh, uh, you know, over 36 years. So I don't really meet too many other writers that have been writing that long, uh, especially uh, writers that write in, in different genres. I mean, I, I still write and I published uh, poetry, short fiction, nonfiction, uh, plays, and of course, um, in very, very different types of genres, too. Um, uh, I've done uh, I've done a science fiction novella. I've done a number of nonfiction books. I've done philosophy books, science books, uh, literary books, fiction and and, and, and poetry. Um, I got another one. Actually, I got like two that are going to be coming out this this year. I think both of them will be uh, uh, what I would consider uh, uh, nonfiction. Uh, I think one's going to be more about um, robots and you know and technology and. Some of the gritty elements of that. Uh, it'll be a short one, but uh, but a sweet one, and I'm I can't wait uh, for that. But 
what I did on for this book here, Question the Quiet, was, and it says selected writings because I was able to put together just, I don't know, if you want to call it like like the old albums, you know, the best of your hits or, you know, your your, your strongest selections or whatever. I, I just I just wanted to find a, a, a few favorites, you know, of mine um, from the various uh, ways that I write. So we got some poetry in there, we got fiction, and of course we got nonfiction. I put some quotes in there because one day I want to put, put together a quote book. So I thought that'd be fun as well. And uh, there's a big bio in, in the back and, and in the front there, there's the author's note. Now, this is something I do and it's something for you to consider, okay? Um, I, I really insist on, especially in my own press, when I put together um, uh, e-books for, for you know, some writers, I, uh, I, I like to have some kind of introduction, either an author's note, they're kind of like, Summing up what the project's all about, what direction it's going to, where they came from to do this, you know, etc., etc. I think it's really important on poetry because sometimes people, if they're new to it or if they don't really understand poetry or, or, or maybe they're just new to what you're doing, that might kind of give them a better way into it, almost like a, a door, you know, for them to walk into a room they're not sure about, but at least you're opening the door for them. And that's what a good introduction does. You know, on the selected writings especially, I, I like that because I, I really think it helps, kind of gives you an idea what I want to, where I want to go with this particular project. Now, what I did with this book, besides it being a, a print book, is I wanted to do something different. I, I wanted to do uh, selections of, of my writings over the years, and this is from uh, 1999 to 2019. So this is a, a, a 20-year selection. You could probably say over the, the last 20 years, uh, of my writing I wanted to put together pieces that that fit the title and in this particular case uh, question the quiet and, and that comes from my I don't know if you want to call it suspicion or just my own philosophy that uh, when you get things that are quiet suddenly uh, there's usually danger <laughs> uh, it could be a child they, they get quiet you got to go run and make sure they're not drinking Drano or Worshipping the devil or, or killing the cat with a knife or just stealing, you know, candy when no one's looking or something. Something bad is going on. Uh, the same thing with the dog. If you hear something, you don't hear anything anymore. The dog's probably eating cat poop and you're not looking or trying to steal some banana cake from the kitchen counter or, or, or some kind of other evil thing, you know. And, and of course, uh, I apply this to people because, I don't know, maybe because I'm from New Jersey and we're big and loud. I don't know, but uh, it, it's just my own experiences uh, with growing up and just my own life experiences. I, I don't trust the quiet ones, and I don't like people that sit on fences. I don't really care if you uh, disagree with every damn thing I ever had to say or wrote in my whole life. Have a position, at least, and have it out there. I, I, I respect that more, even if I don't agree with anything, versus uh, I don't have an opinion, or I'm not going to tell you anything, I'm pretending I'm neutral. You know, I, I have no respect for that. I think it's I think it's garbage, and those are the people you ought to be worried about. And, and so that's really what it, and just this whole book is about. Various selections of my writings about the quiet things that happen and, and some of the bad things that can come out of those uh, quiet situations. Now, I'd like to read this, uh, this first selection over here. It's from the poetry selection, which I started in the, the beginning of this book. I got this uh, piece uh, produced in uh, Anak uh, 
uh, Centra, which is a, a, a Taiwanese literary publication. They, they, they print in English uh, some years back. And it's called the Aerial Reconnaissance of Melancholy. By the way, it's probably one of the longest titles ever put out. And um, I don't, even though I, I, I put a show about this particular subject, and I don't recommend it, okay? But oftentimes, when you dream, you have certain, like, I, I call them physical memories that you don't always get all the details, and oftentimes you can't use it much for writing. It's not the basis of anything. But in this particular case, I had a strange dream and I was able to remember most of it and, it. and it kind of worked out on something I was thinking about. It's almost like it connected together. So I wrote a lot about that dream in this particular poem. And I, I just, I liked the idea. And uh, in this particular case, it, it came from the dream as well. But I liked the idea of, you know, um, I wouldn't say the ghost uh, of of a lost pilot, you know, in Burma, you know, during the Pacific War and World War Two, but just the, the 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 psychic negative waves of of, of someone dying, you know, and, and maybe uh, you know all alone as they're dying, you know, in in this in this jungle, and, and they don't find you for like fifty a hundred years later or something. I just thought how incredibly sad that was. And, 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 of course, there's also a way to, to sort of knock that, uh, that military government, you know, um, that calls themselves something different than Burma. But I'm not calling you that. I'm calling you Burma. Too bad. Okay? All right. So here we go. Aerial Reconnaissance of Malikani. Encased in the foliage is an eaten fuselage. Unfound, unwanted. An accidental tomb for a brave pilot lost in the war. Of the Pacific, lost to the ages, like an ancient language unspoken, but with much to say, like Burma, it is embedded in the blood of the disappointed. So I always liked that poem. Uh, I got some good comments on it. Um, some people thought it was sort of mysterious. I guess it, it, it can be when you think about it that some of it's coming from a dream, but I kind of give you an idea of where I was coming with, with that with that poem. And I, again, it, it fits in the question of the quiet theme that I was putting together with the book. And, and it's probably one of my favorite poems that I've probably written in my lifetime. So I, I definitely wanted to include it in, in in this print book version of it anyway. So I'm really happy to, to, to have done that. Now, I didn't think it was necessary to, bring the, to, to read the introduction or, or the author's note. I mean, it, I kind of already gave you what that was all about. But really consider doing that when it, if you put together your own project, uh, particularly if it's going to a, you know a, a, another publisher other than yourself, you're not doing the independent thing because it'll help them frame the book for you. It also might even help in the marketing end of things, and sometimes it helps you even tighten the book up because when you're trying to explain to yourself, you know, the unifying theme of your book in a way, you're going to also help explain it to the audience, and and of course in this case. Explain to the publisher before you go to the audience because that's really your first job in, in that regard. So it, it's a good idea to do so, and I really encourage it. It doesn't have to be some big academic exposition of five pages and, you know, quoting Floyd and everything else, okay? Uh, I mean, the, the one I had here was, was less than a page, you know? So you don't have to have something big and flowery and academic and intellectual and powerful, Okay. But it really does help. It's sort of like a guide wire to this. And, and, and I think you'll find it really helpful to you when you put the book together as well. Okay. Now, what is read 
another one, and this one I wanted to pick from from the fiction section, okay? I, I, I started writing short fiction in 1990, and I was I was fortunate that I had a couple of really good editors that, that, that encouraged me, and it's always fortunate when you have those, because, I don't know, these days it seems less and less we have editors that, that care about doing their job, and more just about having a title. You know, but their job is to help you. Their job is not just to sit there and call themselves an editor. Don't forget that, and don't forget to hold them to the to the fire on something like that. I mean, I won't even publish people that this is going to be disrespectful and not do their job. So make sure you you consider that, okay? But I was very fortunate. Uh, my first uh, piece that was published uh, was called Philosophy of Rent, and it was published in a magazine called Satire. And he had some really wonderful things to say and, and extremely encouraging. So I, I couldn't gotten a, a better welcome on, on doing that because at the time I was still very new to short fiction because I was just doing poetry and um, uh, nonfiction at the time before I moved into uh, that area that I wanted to move into. So I'm, I'm happy to have done that. Okay, here we go. All right. Okay, all right. This is this is a good one, and, and it, it's sort of a personal one too, so that, that that that's always a nice thing. All right, it's called Brando's Bench of, of Blues. Now, what I have to give you a big introduction to the piece, I, I just just to mention to you this, okay? I'm from Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, this is where uh, a lot of the on the waterfront was filmed with Marlon Brando, uh, a really classic uh, a movie, and uh, I live right across the street from the park that uh, some of the movie was filmed at. So, you know, the gate on where Marlon Brando was at and all that. That's the last places where I played at and hung at. So, and, and of course, unfortunately, it was also the place where my grandfather had died. Uh, he was one of those people that dealt with shell shock, as we used to call it back then, you know, before they called it post-stress. And, and one day he wandered out of the house in the winter without a coat on. Uh, I guess he, he had some drinking uh, going on there as well. And he fell asleep on the bench, and he simply uh, froze to death with, you know, died of exposure, as they call that, in that park that I played in. So um, I thought it was good to write about that. And uh, many years later, I was able to do that finally. And, you know, I, I put it into a short fiction piece, even though there's elements of the truth to it, because that's what you do as an artist. Not everything in this thing is true, but, you know, enough of it to, to give you an idea, okay? My, my grandfather got drunk. And froze to death on a park bench. He carried the burden of shell shock, painting his blue lips, found wanting the next morning. His suffering was private yet paralyzing, and my grandmother often said her husband died in the war, and what returned was a pale imitation. Who was this guy, and what happened to that spark of life? Nobody really knows. When your best friend's head explodes like a ketchup bottle in front of your eyes, the experience must have an impact on your worldview. Brushing out brain parts from your hairline because your unit has been hit with large caliber artillery tends to be more than a twist in their sobriety. Roaming fields of bloody torn limbs and half-starved scarecrows brings a hammer against the kindest heart. These are some of the events he's encountered, and the rest I am simply speculating. My research in military records only goes so far. But how much can one man stand a repeated horror before something breaks down? The bench he died upon was but a few feet from the Iron Gate Brando filmed the iconic on the waterfront. 
I often wonder about the irony and the eerie coincidence when considering Brando battled his own mental health demons. Two men of a generation unwilling to share their fears or confront their nightmares. Two men grown distant from their families until no one recognized the face they chose to show the world. Maybe Brando was on that bench with my grandfather before he passed into paradise. Both singing the blues in a dark park unforgiving to pigeons and patriots. Maybe he spoke to my grandfather upon arriving in the afterlife. Maybe they found peace a Hoboken could no longer provide. Maybe this is more comforting than admitting the war killed my grandfather twice, damaged my grandmother, and probably hardened my mother to the very notion of happiness. Fiction not invented to lie, but to give scope to the truth. But even the long view in this family drama doesn't escape the velocity of vicious rumor. Perhaps just like your family, some things should remain secret. Definitely one of my uh, more favorite endings uh, to one of my fiction pieces. Because it, it, it sort of just reminds you when you're putting something like this together. As much as you might want to fictionalize it, there are elements that are true. They they do sting. And you always have to say to yourself, um, you know, should I even have talked about that? You know, but um, my... Uh, my father is gone, and my grandfather is gone, and my grandmother is gone. So people alive who would have heard that story or, or read it, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to hurt them or, or cause them any, any discomfort, regardless of how much a writer I am and, and how much, I, you know, I believe certain things should be out. It also, you have to have some timing on things when it's, when it's close to the heart or closest for a family member. So I felt years later... When they had passed that, you know, it was proper to put that out. And that's what I did. It came out a few years ago and got, got a, a really welcome response for it. I got nominated for an award. So I can't complain. And I'm happy to have that out there. I, I shared it with my children, too, when I got a little old enough. And uh, it was just a, a good thing to talk about. Um, especially uh, as a military veteran myself and, and somebody that has availed themselves uh, of the services when it was necessary for post-stress. Uh, I, I definitely live what I, uh, what I preach. Um, I wish they had those things back on my grandfather's day where he didn't have to, you know, hide in, in terror and, uh, until it shortens his life. And it's just unfortunate, you know, that uh, he had to go that way. Um, but um, we know now what that does to affect people, and we've saved many, many lives because of, we've been a lot more open about our mental health situation. I mean, ideally, we're not there yet. On, on many fronts, but uh, I'm hoping that as we continue to talk about this in literature and in real life, you know, we'll help people and, and, and move us uh, forward rather than people, you know, hiding in a basement or hiding in some closet or, you know, just being a prisoner to, uh, to a pill that can go out there and, and use literature and use confession and, 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 and be brave again. So that they can uh, heal themselves and, and, and of course, uh, you know, make their family whole as well as themselves. So I'm really happy with that. Now, I have a, a nonfiction piece I've actually, actually talked about. That's another section on this book that I was able to do. We'll go back and forth to some other things later because, you know, I want to I definitely want to read the um, the main piece of the of the book. I actually have a poem called Question of Quiet. It'll kind of help bring that about really, really nicely. And I'm always happy about that. Okay, here we go. All right, all right. Um, 
one of these days I'm going to write a memoir, and one of the pieces I'm going to have in that memoir is is this one right here. It's an excerpt uh, of that book I'm putting together one day. It's the next project for me to do on a big level, and I'll be embarking on it later this year for quite some time as I kind of scale back on some of my other writing because I'm just about done putting all the books I want to have out there. And uh, I'm writing up my last play, and that's it. I'm just going to do the magazine do some publishing to help some other people out with books and uh, and do the show and and just work on the memoir so it'll be a nice way to you know do something different for a change because I've never done that before I've only done this excerpt all right this one is called I missed the Cold War and quite frankly compared to some of the the garbage we've had to deal with uh, uh, with the with the Bosnian racial uh, ethnic cleansing conflict and and of course, uh, terrorism and you know, Al Qaeda and 9/11 and all that. I'm telling the Cold War seems simple compared to that stuff. And I lived during the Cold War as a veteran, so um, I definitely miss it <laughs> compared to everything I just mentioned. Okay, in the past decade, I have spoken to hundreds of Cold War veterans like myself who generally expected a safer world after the defeat of Soviet communism empire. I had the privilege of serving in the United States Air Force. Stationed in West Germany for five years from 1985 to 1990, right up until the fall of the Berlin Wall. After duty, I arrived at the wall on the second day of celebration. The place was awash with youth, shouting and screaming and tearing down slabs of the wall. I saw young women half-naked and beer-soaked people spending the marks the West German government handed out, and I took the cheap mementos off the street market. It was as if they... East Germans might come back and, and corral a whole lot of them. I later learned social scientists have a term for these thoughts. They're called institutionalization. Wow. At the end of the three-day drunken celebration began years of relearning and retraining for life in a market economy. I stared at the world in previous years, and I stared back at, and it spared back at me. The dead stare of a stone monstrosity imbued with evil memory. Now the wall was merely a metaphor for biobotical division. It lost all mystery and negative aura. I became witness to history unfolding before my disbelieving eyes. I never expected to sing Pray for the Day, a song by the British rock group Magnum that cried, These cities' walls will crumble and fall. Pray for the day. And I watched it happen in my lifetime. In an instant, all the hardships of military life in West Germany, the endless nuclear biological warfare exercises, the long stints from home, the fear and paranoia of the locals, it slipped away like a partially remembered dream. Two months later, I completed my six-year enlistment and moved on to civilian clothes, confident I contributed to a noble effort to free millions of souls behind the Iron Curtain, behind the Berlin Wall, behind the lies told by old men tinkering with atomic brinksmanship. None of the students of history among us anticipated ending the Cold War would unleash ancient Serbian ghosts bent on mass ethnic murder. We never dreamed for a free, for every free Poland that they were made a Chechnya ready to explode. We were so busy counting and countering and containing the communist threat, we overlooked the old societal elements such as Islamists, ultra-nationalists, virulent racists, etc. The state security organs expertly Suppress these people from public view. Those chickens were now coming home to roost, and America, the lone superpower on the planet, was simply unwilling or unable to deal with a new terror order assembling to strike back. In their eyes, they defeated 
Soviet communism, not the United States. We were the next target. In the 1990s, I worked in my local government in a politically appointed position, directing senior citizens and military veterans towards programs and benefits tailored to enhance their lives. I wrote papers on Huxley, Orwell, human cloning, bioethics, poetry, uh, using it as a poetic tool for the combat veterans and stress. My short plays on race and religion were produced off-Broadway. I supported Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm and agreed one contacted to temporarily serve as a chemical warfare instructor at Fort Dix, New Jersey, if permanent members were not located. The Nangs were also a time of deliberate defiance as I went against my chosen party and supported a Mandela presidency, the aerial assault on Bosnia, Serbia, and Belgrade, and the nation building in Sudan, and the failed UN intervention in Rwanda. In the arts community, I condemned the unholy sentence placed on Salma Rushdie's head while simultaneously criticizing Rushdie for recklessly writing a book meant to offend a world religion. His thoughtless actions ultimately endangered his life and cost the lives of others in the publishing industry. I condemned public financing of profane art created to further careers through controversy rather than educate or entertain its intended audience. And I wrote and spoke out, I spoke out against censored ultra violent video games and their effects on impressionable children. All this time I noticed Afghanistan falling apart day by day. The forces of the Northern Alliance could not hold the capital and regain the country as long as the remnants of anti-Soviet jihads calling themselves the Taliban were armed and financed by Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. The Taliban won and took over the country except for the north. The Taliban brought order to chaos, was friendly with Saudi Arabia, and disliked Iran. The American perspective, I'll bet, lukewarm, interpreted the results as it could be worse. In a short time, the situation sank below worse, as evident by a laundry list of horrors. Outlandish personal restrictions, gruesome public executions, the destruction of national treasures, exploitation of the heroin, tradecraft, and the murder of Iranian diplomats. The Taliban, which translated means student, ceased being an orthodox Sunni movement and emerged as an extremist Islamic cult, not unlike the Khmer Rouge. The country they mostly control now was turning into a breeding ground for multiple terrorist camps. Contrary to popular misconception, the Taliban, not bin Laden, called the shots in Afghanistan. They put into practice what bin Laden could only theorize on a widely distributed audio cassettes. He gave them international clout. They gave him a cold cave with a satellite dish. He gave them a new world method of murder. While I watched airliners slam into buildings, I felt the rush of righteous anger. I quickly volunteered that late afternoon to be a guest on Kyle Warren's Across the Net Internet radio show. I said to myself in the show how America missed so many opportunities to deal with terrorism in the past. The blindness of the past Cold War pursuits and the present of neo-isolationism curtailed priorities and the corridors of power. Our enemies were not communists, easily identified by geography and policy. Our enemies were faceless, stateless mass murderers acting on the orders of pseudo-religious leadership whose true aim was to capture and control the entire Middle East. I miss the Cold War. I honestly thought a new world order comprised of peaceful nations working together without threat of nuclear holocaust was a plausible reality. Instead, America's Cold War victory 
freed the forces of fanaticism to finance a new terror order of rogue states and supersized terror cells. Few nations aligned against this growing threat has been spared this bloody aftermath of innocent bodies blown to bits on a busy afternoon. Many parts of the world have changed for the better, but my land is not any safer. I now live in a country with armed soldiers at the airports and its military services launching massive attacks in two countries, Afghanistan and Iraq. I miss the Cold War. I miss the days when the unthinkable was undoable. Not for lack of grit or imagination, but for sanity's sake. There are universal lines that cannot be crossed without profound spiritual consequence. Each of us stores deep within these lines the fragile energy known as humanity. Any breach pours out that precious energy on a hungry earth, and it disappears like so much transplantic dogma, failing to withstand its first and last mortal test. Whereas duty, honor, and country matter most to the patriot, we must resist losing our better angels to bomb-laden martyrs conditioned to see suicide as a sacred sacrifice rather than a deification of stupidity. I believe every lover of death hides a hopeful child dreaming of a missed playground more than a promised paradise. There's certainly an eye-opener to, to come from all of that military um, experience and, and conflicts that I went through and, and then to see the world uh, seem to go away in a way that now we didn't really have much control over. I mean, it's not like you can aim a, a nuclear missile at a terrorist group and say, I'm going to push this if you stop. Heck, they would want you to push it. You know, they want destruction. And it's good to see now that so much of this has been, uh, uh, you know, contained and in control. We got rid of Bin Laden. We got rid of many of these evil terrorists. Not that the terrorism is over with and maybe never could be over with, but... We've had a better handle on it, but it, it is definitely taking a toll. I wanted to add something to that uh, um, that content of writing out there, mainly because of my own military background and because of some of the things I've done. And um, I'm happy to have done so. And I was able to put that piece in this book. Now, what's what's important to do, especially in, in a print book like this, is you want to try to keep in mind that the publisher wants to be able to put this out as at a decent, effective, you know, price. Something that that's reachable for people. So you don't want to be putting a book out there that's two and three hundred pages, even if you have all the material, even if all the material jives together, even all the material is fabulous. You want to try to keep it under a hundred pages. You really do. If you keep it as a small book, you know, and, and and put your very best effort out there, you're going to be able to get something that's going to have an impact, and it's going to be something that's affordable for people, and and, and it gives you more material later on when you want to do other things. And so don't try to put all of your stuff out there at once. I think that sometimes when people do that, it's not really the best thing to do. It really isn't. Because uh, in the end, you know, it, it makes the book a, a lot more expensive. And it could be a very unwieldy after a while, too. You know what I mean? If you're varying it up with some stuff, that helps. But still, it, it, shorter really is better, you know? I mean, I could probably put together a thousand-page book easily and not even cover all the things I've written over my lifetime. That makes no sense. You want to make it into smaller, shorter projects. Easier digestible for people. Easier for you to market. And, of course, easier for you to explain. Or at least give them some kind of decent introduction. Okay? So, definitely keep that in mind. Now, I did want to go over to uh, the piece that, that sort of, like, introduces the, you know, the, the overall um, theme of the book. And that's the poem, Question the Quiet. 
definitely become one of my favorites over the over the years okay here we go question the quiet question the quiet like kids left alone in the playroom that silence is not golden it is nightmarish question the quiet like a lover two hours late for every dinner that tardiness is not an accident it is garish question the quiet when you can't hear your grandfather snore throughout the night hold your forbearance question the quiet if you lose your inner voice shelter the heavens to find your faith clouds will grant clearance question the quiet or you'll be quieted by the questions and it is definitely part of my own philosophy i've talked about it a lot on the show uh strength to be human that um to be quiet, to be on the sidelines, to be on some sort of fence, to be on some silly middle road. We, we just don't live in a days anymore where we can afford that kind of position. You, you need to be able to take a position, go out there. That's how people have to live our lives. And I'm telling you right now, as writers, we're really called to be doing that. We can't be on some kind of a fence. What the hell is the point of being a writer then? Just you, be another numbskull like the, the five neighbors that live next to you? Only want to talk about the weather and, and the favorite sport team? Idiotic, okay? We're supposed to be more than that. We're supposed to be able to help instruct those people to think about something new, to open their mouth and open their hearts to something. So you can't do anything but question the quiet because the questions will quiet you then because they're going to ask you, where were you? What were you doing? You know? I've been fortunate to travel around the world, so I was able to write a lot of the things that, I, that I've saw, and, and I've seen a, a, a great deal, you know? I, I wrote a poem, and, it, and it's in this book over here. I literally watched the man uh, practically being beaten to death. He was a, a, a communist border guard. I mean, the, my own decency and my own humanity is, communists or not, I, I wish I didn't have to see that. But in the end, I didn't intervene, not because I was scared, because in the end... I'm the guy that's telling these people, break your chains of these communist prison guards, these communist idiots, and be the free people you're supposed to be, and take your destiny in your hands. Get your justice. Sometimes the only justice you're going to get in the beginning of a society like that is the street justice, you know? And I can't, I can't, I, I can't blame them. I, I couldn't, I couldn't judge them, so I wouldn't want to interfere in something like that and let it go by whether the guy died or not i don't know and i can't tell you that i would actually care i, I really don't i know i i was in east germany i was in germany and I, and I heard all the stories i heard from refugees that escaped that 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 country years before the wall came down people going to work getting raped by their boss guys going to a factory don't know if his family's gonna be put in jail because he said something stupid about somebody i mean this is the kind of horrible society tv cameras and microphones on every block unbelievable ridiculousness no one should live that way so hard to know when they're grabbing a guard and doing that thing how many rape how many women did he rape how many people did he kill you know you try to leave the wall they shoot you it's ridiculous that that's that's, that's the kind of life that they were living over there so he definitely got what he what he deserved, you know. And I can't I can't see uh, thinking otherwise because I, I think in the end I would be hypocritical myself, and certainly in, in contrary to to the things I preached about. 
Okay. Um, oh yeah, I I have. Uh, I was fortunate with this book because I was really really able to put some of the ones I really really liked out there that I, I kind of thought should be in a book for a change. Oftentimes, you got some poems that you really like that you've gotten published over the years, but you haven't really got a chance to put them in a project yet because you know over the time, you know. It, it, uh, so much goes by it's like so uh, th this project really allowed me to put some of the poems i wanted to, to really put in there you know okay i i like this one a lot it's called uh longitude of the lonely i won't listen to doubt i know there's an atlas in that boundless heart and i must navigate like i know where i'm going or where i'm coming from but i know neither nor do i care love is an excuse that hides my confusion. And I think we all get caught in that sometimes, folks, where um, we, I, I find people that I talk to that, you know, they confess that they're lonely. And, and, and sometimes they let that loneliness get the best of them. And once that happens, they wind up making bad decisions in their life. Sometimes that bad decision you know, is a one night stand or maybe that bad decision is a relationship that really should never have been. Uh, it could have been, you know, falling off the wagon or it could have been introducing yourself to a drug. Now you're having a problem with it or even an opioid. Because the loneliness gets to a person and they suddenly become afraid of it and, and, and don't and don't deal with it or, or just don't know how to tackle it. It, it kind of reminds me of... Uh, if you remember the the passages from the Bible uh, in Genesis, Adam and Eve, uh, it, it makes it really clear that they're walking around naked all of the time, no no big deal. Suddenly, you know, she causes uh, the sin, and now they're they're ashamed of their nakedness and they want to cover themselves up. What now they realize they're naked? Now it's a problem. So it's sort of like that with loneliness. Some people can be lonely. For some time and they've, I don't know, either learned to deal with it or haven't let them affect them in any way. But then one day somehow it affects them. I don't know if something brings it back to their memory or something jars them into it. And then they wind up making bad choices. And sometimes love, even if it's short-lived, helps a person forget about their loneliness. So maybe for that time being, they're not, they're not lonely anymore. I don't say this to judge anybody uh, at all. But what I am what I am saying is, whenever we make decisions, you know, based out of loneliness or based out of fear or you know, just based out of uh, that are negative things that we don't really feel we can have control over, we wind up making you know the poor decisions that don't really help us in the end. They wind up uh, you know causing more problems. You know, like uh, my father used to say, uh, you know, there's never there's never a bar that's gonna you know fix your problem. I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but I hope I think you understand the gist of it all. It doesn't really it doesn't really help. You kind of just add things to it. Now I was hoping one day, and it's a little different than you'll see in most projects, you know, to put a book of just quotes of some of my writing in there because I thought some of them were kind of funny, snappy, and some of them I just liked just because I I thought they might be able to help illuminate things for for some people. So I I kind of thought that was cool. So I actually was able to include that in here, a little section uh, of quotes. So I'll read a couple uh, to you. Okay. All right. I think I'm going to read the first one of that. That was the one from my father. I wrote all of these quotes with the exception of the one from my father. Okay. Uh, no problem was ever solved in a bar. 
that's that's directly from my father. It was a common quote from my father, and uh, I put circa 1979. I think that's about when I heard it too. Yeah. My father um, was a foundry foreman at a um, at a a plant that made uh, the giant propellers for for steamships. Well, not steamships, just big ships in in, in general. You know, in there in Hoboken, New Jersey, and um, it was common for everybody when they get off the ship to go to the bar and, and have a drink before they headed home. So um, I don't know if he heard a lot of people's problems or just wondering if people going there to escape things. Not really sure, but uh, I I do know that I don't think he was very fooled with that. My father was not a big uh, a drinker. Funny enough, I think he just went just to socialize with the. With the shift, he was a foreman, probably good office politics for for his thing. He was more of a smoker, and unfortunately, he died of uh, liver cancer, and I'm sure that had to do with smoking. I'm so glad I quit uh, 16 years this April. So, okay, all these other ones here are mine. Okay, all right, all right. This is, uh, and, and I, I got these all from either various books or did, or even some things, some I didn't get a chance to ever publish, but I like to quote, so. All right. Uh, Life isn't a John Wayne movie. There's no such thing as a fair fight. You take out the bully any way you can. The ends justifies the means, because if it doesn't, might will always be right. That happens to be a part of my own philosophy. That's from uh, um, an essay, uh, well, actually an article that I wrote in 2006 and I never published it. It's called Tobacco is Your Problem, Bitch. Of course, I think, uh, yeah, I think I was still smoking when I wrote that too. <laughs> yeah, that was because I, I, didn't, I didn't quit until uh, almost 16 years ago. So, yeah, that's definitely, uh, that's definitely it. <laughs> um, okay, here we go. All right, and this one right over here. Freedom comes from good character, not good government. And that's from a political speech I wrote for a candidate in California, and he lost. So don't know if it really helped him or not. Oops. Actually, um, it didn't matter because he lost because he had a, a scam that went on, so he had to pull out. So that's how he really lost. But yeah, I, I, like, I like that one a, a great deal, mainly because uh, sometimes we forget you know, that um, it's not really the structure of, of a government that guarantees freedom, but rather the kind of character that, that people have that can govern them that themselves as well. Because if you're not if you're not responsible people, if you don't care about liberty or you know, the community or anything, it doesn't matter how much freedom your government's guaranteeing you if everybody's running around like a bunch of pirates and crooks. So you have to keep that in mind. Okay. Uh, and this comes from, um, ironically, uh, my uh, my book, Strength to Be Human, and of course the, the essay I wrote, Strength to Be Human, which is what I named this uh, show after. Uh, we need strength to be human in this day of machines, partly because humanity can be disappointing and partly because machines are out to exterminate us. Might seem a little extreme, but uh, it's definitely one of my uh, my beliefs that we need to be Careful in, in reigning in technology so they don't have a, an upper hand on, on people. We certainly don't want to do that. Okay. And then, of course, my endless battle with fencers. So I always have a couple quotes about them. Before I go into battle, I kill the fencers. 
There's nothing more infuriating than a group of people dedicated to do nothing. And that's uh, uh, more from the notes on unpublished article F defensives. I can't say the full F on this show. Okay. It's just the rule. But I think you get what that means. All right. Okay. All right. And the last one here. Um, there's more in the book, but, you know, just don't want to keep reading them forever for you there. If you stare at death too many times, you discover a horrible truth. It doesn't have an ugly face. That was notes from an unpublished article after my third Air Force plane had to make an emergency lander with me in it. So, never any fun. Although we try to make the best light of it. Um, thank God in the Air Force, uh, we have the, the greatest pilots, you know, that ever lived on the face of the earth. And uh, nothing rattles them. I mean, in each instance, I had pilots that not only did they do their job, but, I mean, they were still cracking jokes as the plane you might crash. Just because that's the kind of people they were. They were used to things happening bad and, and, and handling it because that was what their job was. And that kind of leadership is what made the passengers like myself didn't feel like I was going to die, you know. And ironically, after my third time, you know, I just kind of laughed about it myself because that was the funny thing at that point. He wasn't afraid of death anymore, even if it was going to come, just because, you know, you, you felt that um, whatever was going to happen, you know, you were going to you were going to go good. And it's why I didn't join the Navy, because I don't like the idea of drowning and I don't like the idea of sharks eating me. I'd rather die in flames in a plane hitting the ground. To me, it just seems a whole lot more romantic. <laughs> Call me silly. But that's that's my that's my take on 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 the military, okay. Now, folks, you can you can find this book on uh, on a link uh, on my own uh, writing site called MarkAnthonyRossi.com. Okay, it has links to all uh, of the things that have been published on the internet, my entire slew of books that are out there, and it'll be updated with some more that are coming up. Uh, it has a, a video, one of my plays that was uh, videotaped in in London. Uh, it has a lot of my articles, uh, and of course, it has this book's link here where you can hit that and, and, and purchase it. And, and thankfully, we're able to keep the price on the, something that's really respectable. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy with it, and, and I'm sort of proud of it in terms of giving people a really good cross view of all that I've written and some of my some of my thoughts upon things. I've always been more of a social writer as much as I've been somebody in the arts, so I, I like to be able to have that out there. And, uh, and I appreciate your support on that. It's been kind of fun to talk about this, uh, about the book and just about life in general and, and, you know, and how to conceive these books and, and, and put them together. Give that some thought. We have a few shows I've talked about as well. I know it wasn't but a few episodes again. We did the whole thing about, you know, putting together as an independent author. And we'll probably still have more shows to come in, you know, during this year about that because, you know, it's a forever ongoing topic. It really is. And. Something new is always happening and people always have questions and, and they should. But I want them to continue on and persevere and not give up faith in themselves or in any of their writing, okay? And my final thought, just don't forget this, okay? You got a lot of people out there, editors, who just wear the title and don't do the job. So I'm telling you folks, you don't really have any right to get mad at yourself, to get depressed or, you know, throw something at a window because you got rejected a couple of times, okay? It's going to happen. You're never going to know the reason why. And some of it you just need to take 
light of and going ahead because you have to realize that some of them they're probably not doing their job anyway so in my opinion for you to get mad about that or for you to let that stop you for you to let that to harm you it, it, it's to me it's it, it's really a, a really a betrayal because in the end you're betraying yourself over somebody that might not have read your work they might not even have cared they might just want to publish their friends and whoever else agrees with them so does that really mean there was something wrong with your work? No, it doesn't. Okay, keep that in mind when you face rejection. It happens to be the truth, and it's also going to help you. It'll help shield you against some of that nonsense you might feel. Okay, don't get wore down by doubt and 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 faithlessness. Do not. Okay, stay strong. Ask for help. Keep those questions coming. Definitely want to do another bag. You know, in the mail bag here. Probably in March, okay? And I'll be happy to hear something about this book as well. All right, that's MarkAnthonyRossi.com. That's where my writing site is, and you already know how to reach us here on the show. Until next time, folks, God bless. Thank you very much for supporting this show, for helping support me and, and many of the writers that we are helping. Uh, and continue what you're doing. Continue to open in your voice. Continue to write and speak your mind and, and be who you're supposed to be. God bless until next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing, www.somapublishing.com.